0: while I get situated here. Um, Before we get started into the formal sermon, so to speak, um, I wanted to do a little sermon series ordering. I might, uh, and the others of us that have come up here to to speak and teach and do the sermon, might do this from time to time. Make sure you are all in places of greater understanding of what we're doing, especially with this series. Uh, Aspects of the Revelation series you might find difficult to tackle. So it might help to get some clarity. Or, you know, you might actually end up being confused more, but that's not a bad thing. (laughs) Regardless, the intent is to help with clarification. If you are confused, then let me, uh, if you get confused, let me reissue the invitation. Come and ask us questions. We are fellow human beings like you, flawed yet redeemed on the same sanctification path as you all. The only difference is that by your all's trust and the sovereignty of God, we four, Buzzy, Brett, Fred, and myself, are to lead you to the best of our ability under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This guidance is also expressed through your accountability of us. You hold us accountable. And you uh, do that by approaching us and asking us questions if you are confused, and encouragement, because we do need that, If you find growth and clarity, I hope that makes sense. Just because we do work and research and prep for the sermons on Sundays does not mean that this responsibility makes us unapproachable. Approach us and ask questions if you need clarity. If you don't do this, we four are going to go forward as if you all understand everything perfectly and need no changes, adjustments, additions, or even apologies. That doesn't do us any service to improve our skill in teaching, and it doesn't benefit you all because you get the same, you'll get the same stuff. Even if you think you need to say something and don't, you're just, if you don't, we're just continuing on the same path. I'm sure so far you have all understood everything we have taught and preached from up here since we started the series in Revelation, right? You've understood everything, right? Right? Uh, You're lying like me. Anyway, um, if it has been all clear, then you are way ahead of me. (laughs) One of the ones preaching, because even as I've prepped as best I could for sermons, I can tell you honestly that I have not fully understood everything I've studied since I started teaching from up front. That doesn't mean God can't or hasn't spoken through me or even Buzzy Bread or Fred. I'm sure they all feel the same way. Inadequate, but trusting in God's sovereignty to speak even through broken vessels like us. This preaching as broken vessels actually enhances the beauty of the gospel, showing its full expression even on Sabbath Sundays. When I've been at that point where I don't understand what I am to preach, I've tried to admit that and show the parts that I do understand from those that I don't. And then trust God to show me later, or maybe not at all, because that's his will, his sovereign will. He doesn't want us to understand certain things, perhaps because we can't. So, what you have in your hands is a small attempt to bring clarity uh, using visual diagrams. We've kicked around a lot of this language here of what uh, views of the, of the millennia are, and this is just a visual representation of what each of those are. Uh, there are four main ones, and then we've used this word preteris from time to time. You have the key to the right there. You see the cross in J1, that's when Jesus is first coming. We have the timeline. We are in that first line under all those four things. Then you have J2, which is Jesus' second coming. And then what views are on that. Um, T is for the tribulation, if there is actually one, and that's usually a seven-year period. Then you have the R in various forms, that's the rapture, if you think there will be a rapture for your end-times eschatology. And then is for eternity, um, and then a thousand in quotes and not in quotes means literal and symbolic. If you look at each one of those, you see what is meant. So for historic premillennialism and amillennialism, those are the oldest beliefs of what a millennium, what the millennium is. Historic premillennialism was in some of the earliest church fathers' writings. And then amillennialism was about the time of Augustine. So those are the oldest eschaton views. And one of them was literal. So premillennialism believed Jesus is going to come and there will be a literal thousand-year reign of his King kingdom here on earth before the final end. That's why there's a long line there with J2. That that whole thing is considered the second coming. Just as in millennialism Jesus comes, wraps it all up, and the thousand years is kind of a symbol. Jesus, he'll reign for a thousand years. The reason that's a symbol, usually argued is because no king has ever ra- reigned for a thousand years. The longest any king in Israel had reigned, I think, was 50 or 60 years, wasn't it? It was one of... And that that's not even a tenth. So when you say a thousand years, it's like saying you had a gajillion dollars. How much? <laughs> you had a lot. Alright, so then post-millennial and dispensational premillennialism are also symbolic, one symbolic, and literal. Those... Are very recent eschatology, eschatological views, probably in the last couple hundred years. I think postmillennialism started 16th, 17th century, if my reading is right, I could be wrong. And dispensational premillennialism started in the 19th century. And again, you got the same thing with the J1 and the R, you got the little R, the rapture happens there. And then preterist, just so you guys know, is just based, it's it's a theological term. They base it on the Latin word praetor, which means past or beyond. Usually, preterists believe that all full preterist or part, most, most partial preterist of the prophecies of this book of Revelation have been fulfilled before 70 A.D. That's all that means. Um, kind of makes it interesting. Some actually full preterists believe Jesus is currently reigning here on earth somewhere. I'd like to know where. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway. Like, where have you been? Anyway. Okay, so, again, this might have confused you more. Come ask questions. This is just, there's a lot of nuance going on here, too. I mean, this is just general overview. There are views, even sub views, underneath. So, you know, this just to give you a general. Overlay of the thing. So, again, let me reiterate: we invite questions. Please ask. If you don't, we'll assume everything's fine. So, now to the passage. Um, let me read. This is a poem by Michio Shio called "Belief." Still dark. It was Mary Magdalene who, before day, will find what she can't at all explain. His tomb's closing stone is moved away. To Peter and to the disciple whom he loved, she'll go. They've taken the Lord from out the tomb, and where they have laid him we do not know. On hearing of this, the two both raced to where he'd lain, though Peter is clearly well outpaced. Yet seeing the tomb does not contain the body, the loved one's Loved one holds off till Peter who, when going inside, sees the folded coif apart from the shroud. The loved one too believes when he sees that cloth inside which wrapped his head, though blind to what had been implied, that he would now rise up from the dead. So before I get started, I want to claim uh, Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8 that we shall receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be his witnesses, which even today we are his witnesses from now until the end of the age when he comes again. And brothers and sisters, I can say confidently, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. Revelation confirms that. And we should all be as ready as we can for his return. As Jesus taught in his parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25... We should all have our candle wicks trimmed and ready for the bridegroom's return. This is one of the driving reasons we are doing, uh, going through the book of Revelation. I love that part in the first show of the first season of The Mandalorian where the bounty hunter Din Djarin enters a saloon, a Star Wars saloon, so it's very metal and got robots in it. He approaches his bounty. He puts his hand on his blaster and says, you're either coming in warm or you're coming in cold. Meaning dead or alive, you're coming with me. That's that's from RoboCop. Do you guys remember? Dead or alive, you're coming with me. You guys so I kind of see that being said by Jesus to his church in Sardis. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. You're coming in cold, you're coming in warm. From this passage this morning, I want to take a few interest I want to make a few interesting observations in these verses. Then I want to address two points. One is the dead or alive part. Jesus reveals about the Sardis church. And the second is the part about being blotted out or erased, as uh, Sarah's version said, out of the book of life. Kind of a severe thing to say. I'm sure it made the Sardisian church a little uneasy, as it should for us and for good reason. So let me make a couple of observations about this passage. Notice, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in each of the letters so far, There's a clear reference in each one of them in the greeting that refer back to that initial vision. That initial description of John's vision of the Son of Man. Have you noticed that? Each one of the greetings are a reminder of that vision. Jesus as king and Jesus as brother. He is the one that is clearly a being of immense power. All the symbols there. All the visuals there. And sovereignty, and yet also the one who treats John with sensitivity and care. Of course, I'm referring back to my first sermon in this series when I talked about Jesus' as king and friend. that greeting is in each of these letters or these words to the churches. Now notice the way Jesus is addressing each church, which is also present in these words to Sardis. At times, he is pointing out encouragement. And at all times, he's addressing transgression. But it is all in the context of his followers, his family. He is not addressing outsiders. He is addressing his children. In Deuteronomy 8.5, God said to Israel, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Proverbs 3 says this, My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 12 makes it even plainer. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Yes, stupid. I was like, wow, that's pretty forward. The writer of Hebrews wrote more extensively in chapter 12, 7 through 11, where it says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Namely, that Jesus is not addressing adversaries, but family. His tone may sound harsh, but it is only harsh because it is true. He can't see or say anything else because he is the truth. Big T truth. But he doesn't leave every church in these letters without recourse. He extends grace by calling to them to repent. As he does in this letter to the church of Sardis. He says, repent. Repent. A great example of how to show love by speaking truth but also extending grace is in the classic statement, hate the sin, love the sinner. Jesus is doing exactly that in these letters, including this one to the Sardesian church. But this statement of hating the sin but loving the sinner has fallen out of favor. In this world of safe spaces, trigger warnings and the rise of depression in younger generations and identity politics, the idea of speaking truth has been relegated to the tr- a garbage dump. Sin is no longer capable of being hated because it has become wrapped up in the very existence and being of the sinner. Our culture and world have united the two, and therefore to criticize anything sinful is to criticize the sinner. They are inseparable. So neither is to be criticized. If you do criticize, you become the most egregious sinner of all. No one cares if an act or action is wrong anymore. They only care if what you say about it hurts them. If it it does hurt them, then shame on you. In a recent viral video, Father Calvin Robinson in England said this about sinful behavior. The church should absolutely be inclusive. Christ spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but it is they who went away changed, not Christ. We are fallen; therefore, we are all sinners. The church is open to sinners, of course it is. That's the purpose of the church, but it should not be to encourage people to continue to sin. In John eight, Jesus said, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" She said, "No one, Lord." And he's, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It is she who went away changed. <clears throat> Remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not being mean, he's, he is always just, he's being truthful and gracious. He will be truthful and gracious with you and with us as well, as he is here in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Second point. Verses 1 and 2 says this. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Sardis had a reputation that was not consistent with what is behind the reputation. They were dead, or mostly dead, as in Miracle Max and Princess Bride, but they had a name or notoriety of being the opposite, alive and vibrant. What can we get from this? That it is possible to be intentionally or unintentionally deceived. What a surprise that this is usually closely associated with our sin. Even here in verse three, when Jesus says, remember, he is pointing out something they have left behind by forgetting it, whether intentionally or not. And he admonishes them to wake up and repent. We don't know exactly what the transgression was, as we do in other statements he makes to other churches, but it is nevertheless equal to those sins. You don't repent from sinlessness. Do you suppose that our Sardesian followers knew what Jesus was talking about when he brings it up? I think he, I think they did. I'm reminded of the story of the emperor who, who his emperor knew, uh, the emperor's new clothes. The whole time, the leader of the empire was going around practically naked, thinking he had clothes on. Everyone complimented him on the beautiful clothes that were not there. That is, everyone complimented the emperor and maintained the deception until a child said aloud while the emperor was on parade showing off his new clothes. He has no clothes on. And all deception ceased. So how do we keep from becoming like the Sardesian church and not deceive ourselves? I think there are several good ways to put ourselves in places of honesty. One is look at the gospel. See it. Meditate on it. Preach it to yourself, meaning remind yourself of its value. This requires the use of the Bible. Grab consistent times with him daily uh, to do this. Read it. Uh, talk to others about it, whether believer or not, to make it an important and make it an important part of your daily life. Two, do this with others also, who are also doing it themselves. Not just Sundays. Sundays are important, but remembering our position before God is valuable every day. Colossians three sixteen says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom." Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Three, preach the gospel to your neighbors. I'm not necessarily saying you do a complete presentation of the gospel with your neighbor unless that is needed. But I am saying to speak truth and grace to them and live it before them. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says here, be wise, make the most of the moment, and be salty with nonbelievers. Salt can sting. It can also flavor. So remember and preach the gospel to yourself. Be in community, genuine community, with people doing the same. And look to invite outsiders and non-believers to consider the truth and grace of Jesus of Nazareth. These activities certainly help you not deceive yourself and others. Second point about being dead or alive is the source. Who is the one saying to the church of Sardis, you think you're alive when you are dead? It's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Revelation one eighteen, Jesus himself says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. If anybody can discern what is dead and what is living, it is the very one who is the living one, the one who holds the keys to death. Why does he hold the keys? Because he defeated death by his resurrection. The Apostles' Creed summarizes it when together we say, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Death is a separation. When you die physically, your soul separates from your body. When you die spiritually, you are separated from God. Here Jesus is saying to the members of the Sardis church, you are separated from the life you had before. He actually says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. See, mostly dead. Miracle Max. It is interesting that Jesus says that there is still some life in the Sardis church. And it is evident in some of the current members, as he says in verse 4. But nevertheless, that life is close to death. So what is it that Jesus says to remember? What did they receive and hear? It isn't really clear. Some commentaries said it had to do with a lack of proclaiming the gospel. That could be true. But when I read the statement from Jesus to remember what you received and heard, it makes me think of that classic stanza from Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Perhaps most of the Sardis church was lethargic about their salvation. They were not remembering the days when they were first saved. This is probably one of the things that was perhaps present in the Sardis church. It was historically a very prosperous town. It was the headquarters of a large kingdom, a very rich kingdom. And lethargy tends to come in when you are provided with a lot of resources. So So anyway, they were not remembering the days when they were first saved. I know I wrestle with that memory at times and I'm sure you do as well. Jesus said in John 10:10, "I came that they might have life and have it abundantly." The image that comes to my mind is the character of Tom Bombadil in the Fellowship of the Ring. Go in and read that section where the hobbits experience a home, a really true, truly unique home in the land of Middle-earth. Remember that moment where the symbol of death and destruction, the ring, when Bombadil had it, had no sway over him. He put it on. When he went to put it on, uh, Frodo thought he was going to disappear like he does. But he doesn't. He laughs. He kind of uses it as a monocle. This thing had no power over Tom Bombadil. Death and destruction had no sway. Sound familiar? If you do confess that, uh, that to God, if you do confess to him your lack of remembering his salvation in your life and remember how the author of life has given you life, that brings me to the third point of dead or alive. That's the life part. This is why I chose, as part of the reading this morning, Romans 6, 1 through 11. I encourage you all to read and meditate on those verses this week. But let me focus on just verses 8 through 11, which say this. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, or as it said in Sarah's... Version Matt no longer has master is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't think it can be made plainer of how Christ's death and resurrection works for those who trust him. The author of life died. That is a mystery but still true that same author of life rose again from the dead that resurrection is permanent it means that only life is now in him and because it is true for him and he is only life life now it is also true for us death has no sway over Christ it now has no sway over us remember it's the tax collectors and the prostitutes that went away changed Jesus didn't change sometimes wonder if we enter our, the dark areas of our culture with that same mindset where we think we're going to get soiled. Do you not know that Christ is in you? They went away changed. So can the sinners, the outsiders, and the non-believers in our lives. They can go away changed by your presence. This is why when we sin, it is out of character for us. Because sin has no power over Christ and therefore not over us. Perhaps this is what the Sardis church struggled with. They forgot what life in Christ meant and therefore were acting out of character by their sin. Are you acting out of character? Are you confessing it to God? Are you seeking accountability and encouragement from a close brother or sister to assist you with your walk? God has put us in a community so that He can work in and through them as He works in and through us. This is not rocket science. Lastly, this blotting out or erasing. In verse 5, it says this The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the uh, book of life. Now, after talking about life in Christ, to read this seems like a jolt. When I have read this, I can't help but think that it might be ta- he might be talking about losing your salvation. But that is not the case. Remember from my first point, the context of these letters is family. He disciplines, he reproofs the ones he loves. This is even evidenced in this passage by the judgment of the Sardis church, being contingent on their repentance. If they repent, judgment is averted. Remember he says he's going to come like a thief. Well, if they repent, he won't come like a thief. He'll enter and feast like a brother. When Jesus says that the one who conquers will not be blotted out of the book of life, he is stating a reality, not issuing a threat. Parents, do you discipline or punish your kids because you hate them? Do you look for ways to make your kids fear you because they so that they obey you? No, you want your kids to love you because you love them. It's reflected in that statement, classic statement. On I was, it was catechism almost. I love him because he, God, first loved me. Uh, parents, you first love your child. Your child in the first moments had no concept of loving you they just came into the world but you loved them so they love you back you first love them they love you back so i would suspect you would much rather parents have them honor you and obey you out of love and not fear why would god do it differently for us the judgment hanging above the church at sardis was not there because of hate it was there for the good of the local church and the great big sea church of God at that time. What sh- Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Remember this, brothers and sisters. Receive it, hear it, and repent if you need to, as Jesus called the Sardis Church to do. And again, this is because Christ is life, and he loves us. His severity towards us is outpaced by his love. Help me to remember this. Help me to receive and hear it, brothers and sisters, and to repent if needed. I need your help as much as you need mine. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back. The one who holds the keys of death and hell is coming back. The author of all life has come, is offering that life to all of us, and will come back to see who has responded in faith and to fulfill full life in the new heaven and the new earth. Sola Dea Gloria. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, these (coughs) severe, true, and yet gracious words. You were not admonishing our brothers and sisters in the Sardis Church out of hate but you doing it out of love, the kind of love you were showing Zacchaeus uh, all those years ago. Help us to respond to that love. Help us to respond to that discipline. And where we need to, to repent. Or where we need to, to call brothers and sisters to repent. And where we need to, to call our neighbors who don't know you to repent. You are the author of life. In you there is no darkness. You hold the keys to death and Hades, as your words say to us. And we're so grateful for that. Pray this in your name and only because of what you did 2,000 years ago. Amen. Amen.